This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. I recently read Nicholas Badminton's new book, Facing Our Futures, where I came across this idea, imagination is the fuel and the hope for our future. I love that idea. But then he said, but there is a poverty of imagination, which of course caused me to reach out to Nicholas to find out what do you mean exactly. In his role, Nicholas explains that he speaks with organizations across the globe and that if they aren't careful, they will often stifle emerging and important ideas. We have a great and thoughtful conversation where he challenges conventional thinking and dares you and I to question the limitations that hold us back. He invites us to move from we can't or we haven't and to embrace the power of what if. We discuss everything from moonshots and design fiction to a positive dystopian future and what is meant by generational thinking. And of course, he challenges us to reimagine how we think so we can better shape the future. I love this conversation. So please sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Nicholas Badminton. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Nick, I gotta, we were talking off camera before we got started. You've yeah. got to repeat this story about, <laughs> um, I know you didn't want to go there exactly, but I think it's sure. so compelling. I've read your book. I've commented yeah. on your book. I'll bet you if you go find me in Amazon, there are very few comments I've posted. I yeah. thought it was important. And I read people that come on our show all the time their book plus i've listened to a number of things of yours over the years i think the book's great but i love your story because i think it's going to feed into our narrative of yeah. the first review you get is one thing and then now the rest you know your uh, number one best-selling book but could you just tell that story and uh, it was hilarious yeah so <laughs> it's kind of interesting so i write the book and i finish the book and uh, my publisher bloomsbury uh, who have been absolutely fantastic, and you know they're a significant publisher. I'm so so happy to have done something with them. Uh, they they oh, can you get endorsements? So I go out to get endorsements, right? Right. And uh, I, I get um, like amazing endorsements. So uh, a great friend and mentor of mine, Josh Linkner, four time entrepreneur, New York Times bestseller, you know says really nice things uh, on the back of the book. Paul Polman, the ex CEO of, of Unilever, probably you know, one of the most significant sustainability CEOs in the world. Um, loves my book. A guy right. called Yusuf Nassif from the United Nations loves my book. Um, and a great friend of mine, Lo Stamhoff uh, from uh, UNESCO and the Gruningen School, School of Business. All people I respect highly, all people I, I sent copies of the book to, have a read. <laughs> and out comes Publishers Weekly. You know, this is like maybe the tastemaker, maybe it, maybe it's not even relevant anymore. I kind of feel, right. feel it might be the latter. Um, someone just, I think, just doesn't like futurists. And I think this is really interesting. And if you read that, you know, I don't don't suggest people go and find it. Um, but like, uh, if you read it, it's like, you know, this is dry. It kind of misses the point. And it's like, what point? Like, what were you expecting? And this is kind of interesting when we think about futurists. And, and you know, behind the scenes, we were talking about this as well. What is a futurist? What do we do? You know, wh what's our place in the world? And I think, I think the well's been poisoned a little bit by these people that run around the world talking about 
you know, ChatGPT or robotics or th- this, the future of, of industry X is Y or, or whatever, or abundance. And there's all these people that try and sell programs that you all get together and high five people that have made solutions for people that can afford them and whatever. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the review comes from a point where it's like, it's, it, it's dry because it's actually a, a useful business tool for strategists. Right. <laughs> to think about future. Yes, it's it's a little dry because there's there's a process in there. But if you're a process wonk like me, right, you get super excited at process and and right. and, and thinking about new new modes of strategy. Anyway, subsequently there's been nothing but positive reviews and there's some really big news on the horizon that I can't share right now. But right. like it is it's getting a significant amount of play, bestseller, people all over the world. Um, keep messaging me like New Zealand, Australia, Japan, uh, you know, all across Europe, uh, North America that have ordered my book and gone out of their way and say they really like it. And um, that's all I need uh, people in the community to like it and also business leaders to like it as well. Well, I liked it. One of the things that I loved, what I usually do with a book like this is I will go look at the chapters. Yeah. See, which ones capture my imagination the most? Right. Because there's not just in this topic, but in many topics, I l- read or listen to a lot and I l- yeah. l- listen to a lot of podcasts. And so what I'm usually looking for is what's the thing that I, somebody hasn't talked about or the, or it's a nuance. I just had um, a yeah. professor out of uh, Oxford uh, the other day who was talking about control with AI completely in a way different than what everybody's mm. been talking about with controlling in AI. Yeah. And I love that segment because it's an right. area I'm familiar with, but it's another way to think about it. That's right. And That's so in right. your book, I was able to, and we'll get to some of this, but there were themes and ideas. And it then it caused me to go back to a previous chapter that maybe I, I, I said, well, I probably know what he's going to say there because I've heard this yeah. before. And then I realized, well, no, he didn't. So I would go back to that chapter. <clears throat> so we'll dive into some of that. But I got to one of the things I, as I was learning more about your story that I thought was hilarious was, am I understanding this right? Somebody gave you a book about loosely, I'm going to say the future when you were like eight or nine years old and you read yeah. this and it got you uh, thinking. Yeah, so you know, I, I was born in 1972, and uh, and by the age of like eight, eight or nine, you know, the world was, you know, I was in the grip of Thatcherite Britain. You know, it was pretty grim. I lived in uh, like uh, in council estates and a whole bunch of different. I remember, Margaret Thatcher stole milk from the children. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of a, an interesting world. But you know, technology was always kind of interesting. And British TV used to have programs like Tomorrow's World and whatever. You'd be like, wow. Um, so my ba- my dad is part of the school book club you could order these books and we ordered something called the osborne book of the future and i've just ordered one secondhand um so that i can sort of like hold it on stage with me because i think this story is really important at the Mm. age of eight i opened this book and it was a it's a pretty lengthy book that talked about you know we've got robots in the home self-driving cars we're going to be living on the moon we're going to be living under the ocean we're going to be you know producing food in entirely new ways and these are the dynamics of society and it was all it was like technology dialed up to to 15 right, right? and it was you know people like Isaac Asimov and 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 people from Boeing and Lockheed Martin you know they'd really right. tapped into a bunch of old white guys that were thinking right. about future tech and how the world was going to change let's be honest um, but it was interesting i was just like whoa 
I'm completely blown away. And then two years after um, reading that book, I sit down at a BBC micro computer, which is a, which is a, a computer used to have in the UK. Mm-hmm. And my mind was just blown. And it was like, at that point, I, I couldn't stop thinking about science fiction. I couldn't think, stop thinking and, and reading about these kinds of situations. I went on to teach myself how to program a computer. I went on um, when I, I got to university to study psychology uh, and computing. I actually built artificial intelligence language systems in mm. in the nineties. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was always in it, and you know, right. I spent I spent my entire career in data and analytics and building behavioral targeting systems for marketing and and other people that I can't talk about. And and it, it just at that very early age just was that just that spark and i don't think that enough people um give their kids like a spark or a point of inspiration these days because we're sort of overwhelmed with technology and futures are everywhere right whereas at that point in time it was just it was a complete game changer and it was like a flavor of ai uh, a flavor of science fiction and a flavor of real life and you know i i think i think at the age of eight i became a futurist and then yeah. I sort of revisited that about 10 years ago when I started running my own conferences with a number of friends in Vancouver, BC. Um, as you're talking about this, it's evoking when I was a kid, my dad had all of these science fiction novels from the, I'm a little bit older than you. In mm. fact, I started chuckling. My first real race dirt bike was made in 1972. I didn't nice. get it till 78, but it was, right. uh, anyway, another story. Um, but he had my dad was like the all the old school um, Isaac Asimov, um, all, all of that generation, very sixties yeah. um, sci-fi. Many of it great, but they also almost always with these early stories were um, a warning, you know, yeah. unchecked these things. And our neighbor, my dad worked for IBM for years and generations later, or generations, decades later for Boeing. And a significant, if not almost all of that time with IBM was on the shuttle and right. then um, on space station with Boeing. And so our neighbor in California was a chief test pilot for NASA. And so we right. would, I didn't see him flying the jetpacks, but he was the SR-71 pilot. He, uh, he had pictures on the wall of him and a bunch of, you know, Jaeger and um, other, uh, Joe Walker and all these other pilots, some who survived, some who didn't. And that and that era was almost a very romantic, um, nuclear powered everything with with you know no no trying to figure out what are the consequences. In other words, mm. not choosing winners and losers. I'm I'm educating myself right now. It's a, on nuclear power. It's a regular conversation on our show, but just this like really uplifting with every now and then like these scientific or uh, science fiction books little bit of dark kind of an yeah. irobotish kind of thing but by and large it was very positive and now when I talk to people that probably of that generation man it starts off uh, dark and you you have a relationship with that and I want to come to yeah. it in a minute but before we do you have a phrase that I've heard you I don't know if it's in the book but I've heard you say it that I absolutely loved I never heard it before so I don't know if it's somebody else's that you're um, bringing to all of our attention, or if it's your original one, I wrote it down to make sure I didn't forget it. Imagination's the fuel for hope for our future, mm. but there's a poverty of imagination. Yeah. And I sat on that and just let that marinate. I don't know if I agree with it in every instance, but I f- it feels 
it feels relevant and in a lot of areas, if not every area, correct to me. What do, what do you mean by that for our audience? Yeah, so I, I actually call um, so it's a bit of me and a bit of uh, some 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 general sort of uh, foresight community foresight research sort of verbiage as well, right? So uh, we're about three hundred years into the industrial revolutions, right? So we're, we're caught in an industrial complex. So mm-hmm. the way that we work uh, and the systems that we're stuck in, transportation, energy, information, it's all been defined and redefined and evolved and and mashed together over 300 years and you know it's been profit for the few and it's not been very egalitarian and it's called a technological colonization we're put in a box and when we're put in a box we can only operate in certain ways and and you know it's rare that people fight to get out the box i'm one of the people that fights to get out the box um but that's so we're left with an ability to only think within certain lines and boundaries and that's why we've got poverty of imagination it's Mm -hmm. widespread so when do we really daydream at work? When do we come up with brand net new ideas that completely change the world? And I, you know, I, I said this at a conference in Toronto last year, elevate 2000 people in the audience. So like, mm-hmm. put your hand up. If you've ever had a, you know, you've just been daydreaming, you had a great idea, or, you know, albeit very sort of wild, wild thinking that mm-hmm. can actually be good for the business. And, ha- and like, you know, the, the audience like all put their hands up. And there's a bunch of people without their hands up. And I said, the people without your hands up, you're probably sat next to your manager that kills ideas like that. <laughs> Organizations kill a right. great at killing good ideas. They're great at uh, um, subversing imagination and pushing us down. So the reason we talk about, and I talk about this in all my keynotes straight up front, is mm-hmm. that without imagination, strategy is is okay. Um, right. What we do in business is fine, but we're only looking at the end of our noses and we're not really thinking about the betterment of humanity and we're in this pickle caused by 300 years of greed and, and, and capitalism and consumerism and whatever. And I don't dislike all of these things. It's mm-hmm. just, it, it's run rampant and it's like winner takes all rather mm-hmm. than like, you know, thinking that everyone can win if we all work together. Everyone can get rich or everyone can have food or everyone can have the energy or water that they need, right? Yeah. I One of the reasons why it resonated, you reminded me now, is it my parents are from Santa Clara. They kind of okay. they were born in the Midwest, but after World War II, they got relocated to Santa Clara, which is part of Silicon Valley. It wasn't then, but it is now. I um, Well, we moved around the country, started and ended sort of my school journey and everything in California, Southern California anyway. And, and for me, that era of about 30 to 40 years, really from the late 70s, kind of Xerox Parkish, right. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, up until... Yeah. Like this fall, I would have argued with this thing. I was like, what do you mean lack of imagination? There's imagination everywhere. There's all kinds of this. And then, and I don't know if it's just more than a moment. We're six months into it. Yeah. But many of my customers, a lot of my friends, certainly my peers are having a moment in particular in that part of the country because their organizations have had massive layoffs. There's been a bunch of change. There's a, what are we doing? And it, and in some cases they would say, I don't, I'm not close enough to know. We don't understand this group seemed to be profitable and, or these seem to be the super smart ones, not necessarily the super expensive ones. And yet they've been, there's not a rhyme or reason according to them to these changes. And so there's a lot of like scratching our head, what's going on What what's, you know, where's the imagination, where's our hope. And so when I heard 
that idea from you, I thought, wow, you know, this is uh, at least that group's having a lumpy moment. Now, that may not be, encompass yeah. everything that you're talking about, but it's certainly right. reflective of it. So when I talk about technologies, when I talk about life and changes, I talk about, you know, the things that came before and the things that are going to come after more than the thing that it is, right? Right. Uh, whatever that technology is. And it's really important. And let's go back to Silicon Valley, right? You, so yeah. you, you start off your story about, oh, you know, with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. It's like, okay. They just took ideas from people that were actually the true um pioneers of imagination and thinking how the world could be different right, right? so let me tell you a very quick story sure. do you know who douglas engelbart is no right and and this is surprising to me so this is surprising to me that more people don't know who douglas engelbart and bill english and the uh the people that are trying to augment human intellect at stanford are Okay, so 1962, a guy called Douglas Engelbart um, got a team together, got some funding from NASA and some other uh, agencies to to rethink how these big computers, which were mostly used for military and very large sort of government exercises, um, punch cards, uh, mm -hmm. how it could be different. So in, in about like six years, they developed a, a whole new system of doing things. And in uh, 1968, I think it's December the 9th, 1968, in the Civic Center in San Francisco, a thousand people came to see this demonstration. It was called the mother of all demos. And uh, they'd set up a link between um, uh, set up a link between Stanford and downtown San Francisco. It was the world's first connected computer internet. It was the world's first uh, demonstration of desktop publishing, the world's first demonstration of a trackpad and a mouse of hypertext of video conferencing. It was called the mother of all demos. Wow. And people were in an hour and a half, they told the story. It cost about 175,000 US dollars to run this demo, right? Wow. About a million dollars in, in modern language. <clears throat> right. And, and at the end, standing ovation, amazing thing. Oh my God. Clap, 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 clap. And everyone left. And not many people came to see Douglas Engelbart and his team. And, you know, it was it went into the annals of history as being something interesting. You know, these right. are signals of how the world could be. You know, how could we we believe that that could be be so <clears throat> pure imaginative application of, of of technologies in whole new ways. Right. Um, over the next few years, uh, his researchers went on to work at Xerox Park. They right. developed the, 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 the Xerox Alto. Um, it had the world's first uh, graphical user interface to use the mouse, all the good stuff that was right. pioneered uh, by Stanford, by Engelbart and his team. In fact, half of his team were there at Xerox. And they tried to sell it internally to Xerox. And all the old white guys were like, well, you know, but we're doing really good and we're selling tons of uh, copiers and right. printers. And, you know, we're good. And right. they demonstrated it about 2,000 times. And one day they demonstrated it to Steve Jobs. Um, and he gave Xerox 100,000 Apple shares um, to be able to use graphical, the ideas of graphical user interfaces and whatever. Um, and now that company's what worth like $2.6, $2.7 trillion. Right. And my kids Apple? don't know the name of Xerox I know. any more and, and than the they know the name of Eastman Kodak. Exactly. Or <laughs> they don't know the name of right. Douglas Engelbart. Or, that's right. Right? Uh, the, the, the spark of imagination. So... What I try and do when I speak to audiences and and kind of what I just told you is kind of the beginning of what I talk about is there was a need to liberate this technology in a whole new way for the betterment of humanity. If you right. think about what happened in the pandemic, 
all of the ideas that were developed in the six years at Stanford by, by Douglas Engelbart and his team for love of progression of human intellect were the things that saved the world from falling on its ass, right? Right. <laughs> so it, it's kind right. of interesting. So when I talk about poverty of imagination, whatever, it's really important. We can see... You know, I, in, in keynotes, I can present 20 or 30 different signals. Signals are the things that indicate that the world are going to change. I collect them into trends, and those trends, you know, it might be automation. It might be, you know, s- you know, sensory economy stuff. It might be stuff around sustainability. Uh, and then you can take that, and it's an, it, it's an inspiration for you to use your imagination to wonder what happens in 20, 30, 50 plus years, right? And it's interesting. There's, there's there's studies that have been found that companies that do that and companies that embrace imagination and and uh, they've got vigilance about what futures might be. You know, they know what's coming because they can see the evidence. You know, mm-hmm. um, they're thirty three percent more profitable and they they're two hundred percent growth rate than their competitors that do nothing. And I always talk about you're either a bystander to the future or you're an active participant, right? And if you're a bystander, you're never going to survive. You're not going to be here in 50 or 100 years' time. The mm. people that are thinking of those future horizons are going to be here potentially for millennia, right? Mm-hmm. I, just a reaction and then a question. When you were talking about, as you were talking about that, to me it seemed, I hope I don't know if this is unflattering, but it seemed very rock and roll. Like Elvis Presley didn't show up with a lot of original music. He he was so inspired <laughs> yeah. by the by the music around him that right. would never have made it into radio play. Not just because it um, it was uh, Negro spirituals and other these things and the performance, but right. it just it that nobody would have bet on that that there would be an audience. To right. listen to that, other than these little small, you know, small little bluegrass kind of audience or jazz club audience or whatever, right? And he just said, "Well, the heck with it. Here's how it moves me." And he got out there and he just, um, you know, blew the world away uh, over time. Um, and, and we've seen this over and over and over. And so that's sort of my my yeah. reaction is it feels very rock and roll. But, um, but imagine yeah. if imagine if Elvis was allowed to be free form and and free thinking, and the colonel wasn't there putting him in his place and controlling him, you know, allegedly, um, you know. <laughs> Imagine, imagine what what he could have done. I mean, imagine the platform that he could have created for the people that he sure. was inspired by. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, well, we're, the best we're... version of him, it goes on to be this amazing thing. The um, uncontrolled version of him reminds me of almost everybody I know that goes to university that first year. You sort of got to survive for most people that first year that aren't very disciplined. Yeah, You end up, uh, you know, I'm away from home, I'm away, and I end up in this behavior. And so I, I don't know enough about the story on, on whether the guardrails from the colonel were helpful or hurtful. For right. sure it would have been a different thing. But it's one of the things that I think is interesting about you is you challenge this idea of... Um, should there be guardrails? Where should they be? How sure. should they look? How do they work in this world yeah. of imagination? I, I, which, I guess the way I want to start this question is, um, futurists either, in my experience, flinch at this word moonshot, like, oh, God, not another one of these. Like, <laughs> we got to do this. Or they, yes, and they almost run too extreme with it. And I, I say that in the context of um, I wasn't alive when President Kennedy had his moment Sure. Which I think was well-balanced because he said, look, 
We need to think like this. This is the ultimate moonshot moment. We need to do these things. But look, it ain't going to be easy. We don't have this engineering. We don't have this technology. That's right. You know, we're going to have to sacrifice and invest, and we're not going to see an immediate outcome. But in the long term, we should win. And the consequences of not doing it, I don't even want to contemplate. We have to do it. Now, not only because he was gregarious and he framed it a certain way, but Sputnik had been launched and, you know, we were anxious about things of the world and losing the intellectual battle. But I yeah. that I think that's the right way to frame sort of a sure. moonshot. But um, <laughs> yeah. you hear it so often now, you know, anyway, so that I'd love for you to react to that. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> so moon moonshots. So this is a problem I got with moonshots and I get okay. what Kennedy was saying. Um, if you've got a big challenge, something that you're aiming to solve, so they were aiming to land a man on the moon and to return them <clears> home <throat> safely, cool. Right. Call it that's called a moonshot. Cool. Right. That, so, so you know, moonshots have been co-opted as phrases. It's you know, a, a solution that's going to impact a billion people positively. I think that's around sort of you know Peter Diamandis and the people from Singularity University often often say right. those kinds of things. Or you know, and and you know, this is this is admirable. <laughs> But it's also the the sandpit in which com- uh, companies that are worth hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars play in, because mm. because the 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 thing that you're aiming for is so big that it's almost impossible to to hit the target in a way, right? right. Um, so I I kind of don't like the word moonshots. Right. I, I would rather have something where it's like here's a particular problem we can solve that. Let's go and solve that. If it impacts you know a few hundred million people or a billion people, cool. Don't call it a moonshot. It's 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 sort of verbiage that, that goes into you know investor decks. That, you know to make you look smarter than you actually are. It, it's super interesting right now how uh, most of the tech companies in Silicon Valley as a place have basically gotten rid of all their all their teams that are trying to do anything close to that kind of thinking. You know it's all gone. They've got like in in. In this latest round of layoffs or over the last couple of years it's all gone because you know all these companies just want to make more money from selling ads right it's all about it's all about this theater of 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 the market and shareholders and investors and returning value rather than doing anything positive to humanity so you know let's take the moonshot dog out the back and shoot that dead because that that's that should no longer be a part of the verbiage and you know there are that, yeah, there's all sorts of i'm a futurist and i talk about moonshots so i immediately like tune out and you know let's get into substance let's talk about how we can make the world better year by year by year by year and also with a view on the next 10, 20, 50 years. It's like net carbon, uh, yeah, net carbon zero right. by 2050. It, stop t- stop targeting things that are almost impossible to, to hit right. and start targeting things that you can actually hit on a year-by-year basis over a decade or two decades or whatever with real targets and real plans with real leadership in place that's going to be in place for that period of time rather than the posturing of governments and leaders and people that just want to sort of celebrate each other's like smart thinking right Right. so um, yeah one of the things i love the most about you nick honestly as i listen to all i allow these voices into my head is you really are optimistic yeah but it is this um, it is in this wrapper, we're going to get to this in just a second, but it's in this wrapper of that's cool. What can't it, it's interesting because you challenge us yeah. not to stay 
set on what is, but to think yeah. about what if. But yeah. while we're thinking about what if, do it in a practical way, which which seems like a counterintuitive. And, and it reminds me, a good friend of mine, he's retired from um, Accenture now, young yeah. guy, super genius guy. He was a CEO of their digital division. Right. 50,000 people reported up to him. And I was talking to him about climate change, and he said, you know, there's a lot going on there. I have really, really smart people that want to tackle it this way and others this way, and it requires governments and some that we have control over and some that we don't. And I, I, for him, and I want to put words in – his name is Mike Sutcliffe. I don't want to put words in his right. mouth. But he said, you know, what I can really tackle with my – whatever skill I have and whatever resources I have is there is a massive floating pile of plastic garbage in our oceans right. that are – destroying reefs, destroying um, life. Like, like I, I can touch, I see real scientific ways of d dealing with this and whatever, which is not to say these others aren't viable, but I can see a five, 10-year path for me very specifically right. that I can get involved in. And so it's captured my imagination, this and some biotech stuff, and that's how I'm pursuing it. And I just love that attitude of... Um, not not just sort of joining a bandwagon of something that may or may not happen, that you have some or very little control, but I can do practically these things first in my house, in sort of how I live day to day and what I do with waste and then with these other things. And um, from a really, really, really smart person who's hired by some of the smartest firms on earth to help them get unstuck. So that's how I react to you. But I guess where yeah. I want to go is – you talk a lot about shifting from what is to what if. Yeah. What in all these words? What What does that mean? <clears throat> yeah. So I, I read a book called From What Is to What If by Rob Hopkins, and there's an English author that talks about um, sparking imagination, community activism, a whole bunch of really cool stuff. So um, first thing I'm going to say is you know go go and read everything by Rob Hopkins. He's a very smart guy around sustainability and community imagination and all the good stuff but uh, i actually read that book um after a, a couple of days after um being at a conference i was in front of 800 people and my my style of uh speaking at conferences used to be it was about five six years ago used to be here's the future <laughs> so join us you know kind of join us uh we'd love to have you but there was there was no room for people to disagree or to debate it in a way that was a little bit more of a you know open free um free right. thought anyway i gave this I, I gave this keynote i said welcome to the future sort of like yeah a wry tongue-in-cheek moment at the end of my keynote and this guy stood up and he said i think everything you just said was bs and i was like okay <laughs> in front of 800 people it's like <laughs> i was like okay and I've dealt with difficult people, you know, this was, this was in Alberta, um, in Canada, it was, you know, it's oil country, you, you talk about the end of oil in oil country, it's always, right. it's always tough, right? Right. Um, and then, um, you know, we got into it. And I said, Well, you know, I'll, I'll share all of my reference material to everyone. Um, everything is referenceable. Um, you can disagree on that. And what I, I was getting hammered online on Twitter, at the same time, I so saw I found out later. So, like, the trolls are out to try and discredit what I was talking about. I was talking about extreme weather conditions. I was talking about, um, you know, how, how you know, the warming planet was going to affect, you know, water, energy, food, nexus, waste. It was the agricultural industry, you know. So there's a, a number of things. Anyway, we got into it, and then he started saying, what about nuclear? You didn't talk about nuclear. And I t said my standpoint on nuclear, I don't right. think it's an ultimate long-term solution, and that really upsets a lot of people. Right. And, uh, you know, we can always get into that. 
but like, uh, so I was feeling pretty hurt a couple of days. Like I've been sort of attacked pretty hard and I, you know, I was still justified and even more justified these days. Um, because extreme weather conditions, warming, everything is, it's just rolling out as, as per the plan. And, uh, I was reading this book and what if is an invitation to be curious Mm. and it's like, okay, you know, what if the world turns out this way? And someone comes at you and says, no, I don't believe it. Yeah, but what if? Let's let's play with the idea together. And right. let's let's take your point of view. If you've got a point of view, let's go down that rabbit hole. And right. I'll take my point of view. And often the points of view, if they're opposite, one is a positive trajectory and one is a dystopian trajectory, right? Mm-hmm. One's like feeding an economy and one's feeding the people, you know? Right. Uh, so, and that's how I determine things uh, right. in terms of positive dystopian. Uh, and that moment fed into the spark of what my book is and how I think about the world and why I encourage people to to do different things. But what if you can't kill it? Uh, you can't kill that idea of like curiosity. Another thing is if someone comes at you and they say, well, this is never going to happen. Just put the word yet at the end of the sentence. Right. <clears throat> yes. Right. Like, what do you mean? Like, well, we don't know when something like that might happen. But it's completely plausible that it might, might right. happen. It's like we're never going to be hit by you know. It, it's unlikely that that, that there's, you know the idea that, that that Toronto will be hit by a meteorite is going to be really viable. Right. Yeah. Until there's some evidence that it is. Right. It's, right. It's kind of like obviously there are some boundaries here in terms of like we can't sure. invent new physics. Like humans aren't right. going to naturally fly or right. you know, things like that. So I do draw boundaries around it like right. that. Well, it's, you know, we're working within Newtonian laws as we understand them exactly. until, until we get exposed to new laws. Some period of time ago, nobody believed there was DNA or didn't, couldn't understand the concept of DNA. Later, we discover code within DNA. You know, we, who knows what we'll discover. I think it's a dangerous thing to say in most cases, we can't or it never will um, one of the most, uh, somebody t- kind of schooled me once and said, you know, the most educated people on earth in the 1930s were the Germans. Right. And we ended up with a Holocaust. And so it is, it's yeah. inconceivable to a number of us that one country w- in, in the 21st century would w- cross a border and invade their neighbor. Like, so things happen. I, it, this sort of feeds in the next question for me, which is why do you think we aren't very good at seeing some of this stuff. Like we get blindsided sometimes. So I love, love, love this quote by Alvin Toffler, right? He wrote future shock. Yeah. Yeah. OG futurist. Like I I think the the best futurist sort of came from like the, the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, The illiterate of the 21st century will not only be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. Mm -hmm. And what we've got is we we talk about futures literacy and the idea of playing with new futures, uh, but the illiterate that cannot change who they are and think different or cannot think like the people that they disagree with or entertain new ideas and maybe kill some of the ideas that they're holding on to and some of the bias that they're holding on to, maybe some of the multi-generational trauma that they're holding on to, right? Mm-hmm. They, 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 they have to, you know, to be a valuable, useful um productive and contributory person in this world you, 
you've got to be open to lots of different ideas. I mean, you know, sit with the people you don't like and talk to them and understand where they come from. You don't have to dis- you don't have to agree with them and you mm. can still fight against them. I mean, I grew up in Thatcher's Britain. Half of my friends were turned into right-wing neo-Nazi skinheads at the age of 14 and I'm like I was like the opposite direction. I joined the right. anti-Nazi league and a whole bunch of different stuff and I was right. like super militant. Right. And you know, your friend at the age of 14 is still your friend, but he's just been radicalized by someone. So what do you do? You sit down um, for a long, long time and you tell them that they're idiots. And um, you might not want to speak to them for a few years whilst they're going right. through some pretty radical situations, right? Um, but like, yeah, it's it, it's difficult. Like sitting down with people that don't believe in technology or do believe in technology or do think in a different way. To, it's all very, very valuable in the world, right? You know, um, people that... That, that choose not to be part of a society with technology, like the Amish. So certain, right. certain, certain kinds of Amish folk. Um, there's some really interesting documentaries out there in YouTube land with Peter Santanello. Go, go and see him. He, he's fantastic right. at finding human stories. Um, you know, it, it's just interesting. So how do you, how do you help people by capturing their imagination, whether yeah. it's a cultural group or a specific group, to change an existing vision. I, you know, it's it's even in great scripture things, they will say, look, you need to come together like iron sharpened iron. You need to contend with ideas. They're not, in the best instances anyway, they're not advocating separation. They're advocating, we, we talked about energy a little while ago, and I'm on this path of talking to people that the imp, the positive impacts of um, uh, renewable energy onto the grid, the consequences mm. and how do we have to change the grid and does nuclear yeah. have a play and what is hydro? And what I don't want to do is ahead of time decide none of these are possibilities for me to consider. I want smart, capable people that really believe in their technology to bring them to the conversation yeah. together and without destroying each other, but letting the ideas compete and help me yeah. to understand. And then we come away and say, what do we think? What do I think? What do I, how do I want to help influence or invest my time and energy into an idea that I think is this trajectory? So how do you help people set a vision or yeah. change an existing vision in that context? So the futures that I encourage people to think about, you know, we have to go at least 10 years, probably 15 minimum for people to really suspend their belief about what's ever happening today. Uh, a, a great colleague of mine, Dr. Cindy Fruin says anything less than 10 years is strategy. So that's how futures work. Okay? <laughs> and she's fantastic, Cindy. Um, when you are thinking at 15, 20, 30, 50, 500 years in, into into our future, you have to understand it's a rich tapestry of 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 cultures and philosophies and solutions and societal sort of constraints and societal binding um, pieces. It's borders. It's geopolitics. It's it's complicated. Complexity right. is is the world that I I, I play in, right? Uh, but what we can do is to help people rethink solutions and rethink who they are find signals that are counter to what they believe in fundamentally as at the core of themselves as a company, whether that's the products and services they offer, whatever things that fundamentally like jab at them and say, you don't do it this way. These people are doing it that way. Um, this is how it's going to be. This is a different situation, right? You know, if you're, you know, what happens if you sell ski equipment and there's no more ski seasons by 2100, 
Right. You're not going to be selling ski equipment, are you? So anyway, so so it's kind of interesting. Some of these these people and really pushing that some of the coolest companies I work with are engineering companies because they really, really, you know, they, they're already really good at a core set of businesses and they're always looking for new opportunities. And the new opportunities typically are net new, right? Uh and, and it's interesting when like this is where the role of uh in, in, in the chapter in my book, igniting imaginations, you know, design fiction really starting to work out you know what might be but telling bigger stories so going from signals to trends to scenarios into writing science fiction there's an entire chapter of my book that never made it because it was a piece of fiction it was a short story i might release that on my website and uh and and it makes it come alive the people the places the emotions the feelings how does that future feel all of those things really really ignite i think what what a vision and purpose and drive and direction is for a company and uh, the, the the companies i work with are really starting to wake up to that and i've worked with the highest levels of governments and trillion dollar tech companies and i've worked with startups and the people that do make a change are realizing a huge amount of benefit i love the fact that you um are able to write these science fiction stories i I um I remember uh, listening to that and hearing that I listened to so many conversations I don't remember in which case but you talked about it a number of times yeah because it it helps you to free your imagination and That's allows right. the rest of us to free our imagination but but I think one of the most constant things with human beings is um we resonate with stories if you look at That's the right. Bible so many things are in parables or stories or metaphor yeah, or sure. whatever if you look at other you know, Buddhist writings or the Quran or, or yeah. just humanist ideas. Like how do I capture the imagination for good or ill yeah. um, of people to follow? Well, I have to put it in a story that they can relate to so they can see themselves, see the consequences of inaction or the same action That's right. and the benefit of stopping or starting something. I, I had never really thought about that before other than the ability to perform on a stage. But it feels like to me that somebody that's trying to sort through the signals, which I'm curious how you do that with all of this noise, distill it down into an idea or ideas that you want to convey, Yeah, because you want your babies to grow up in a better world, um, and then to reshare it, depending upon who your audience is, right. um, is a remarkable skill. Do you... How do you sort through that signal noise to find out <laughs> really of all the things? Yeah. Because we energy's blowing up, environment is blowing up, right. uh, technology's blowing up, mental health is blowing up. Like, how do you do you go narrow? Do you try to talk a little bit about everything? How do you distill it down so that you can um, help us hear and react? I'm always watching and listening and chatting to people and out in the world and trying to learn a lot about what's what's happening and uh, <clears throat> and and there are some ways to do it really quickly and easily. Um, uh -huh. you, you can you can focus on a, a few things. So I personally I focus on the water energy food nexus. I talk about waste. I I've, I've been looking at data and artificial intelligence and, and analytics and autonomous mm. systems for for a very long time. I look at smart cities. I look at um, community based programs and human based cities. I look at food systems. I look at logistics. 
I look at the space industry. That's pretty new to me in the last few mm-hmm. years, but it's getting more and more prominent in my thinking. And and the people that I know, there's some people that I think you should have on this podcast that, that work okay. for NASA. Um, there, there's a there's a number of different areas. So I look at I look at technology areas. I look at industrial areas, and I've been doing it for a very long period of time. My right. brain is full of useful and kind of useless information. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 human mind is is probably the best sensory machine at, at drawing. Um, lines between things that don't necessarily seem to make sense when you draw a line between them but but ultimately through a derivative action start to make sense and these these are some of the exercises i do with 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 clients as well what happens when you take you know a a community garden and chat gpt what happens when you take you know autonomous vehicles and organ donation um using pig um pig grown human organs what you know like wild wild stuff right (laughs) and uh i like that because it really sparks a a new way of thinking new way of joining everything together um the truth is I've been doing this for a very long period of time. I've been Mm -hmm. soaking up information, uh, tens of thousands of signals just flying around my head. Trends, when I focus in, when a client hires me, I go narrow. And it's like, okay, I go narrow within their industry. I then look adjacent to their industry. And then I Mm -hmm. look from a megatrends perspective globally, Uh, you know, population shifts, uh, power shifts, economic shifts, um, you know, energy, economy, uh, climate, whatever. And uh, it's all this sort of universe of of of, of foresight and signals and, and trends that I sort of swim in. But you know, I try and help people um, sort of jump on board by doing things like set up a bunch of Google alerts and get them in your inbox. Um, go and check uh, Reddit um, forward slash Futurology. There's millions of people sharing some really cool stuff there. You know, just just be an information vacuum right and just do it for for half an hour every single day if you can i wake up at four or five in the morning every day and uh, i've got a young kid so i have to get about three hours work done before i have to sort of uh have some uh like quality time with my son right and i've had to do that because that's the time when i just really soak up a lot of crazy stuff and what's happening in the world and i always look at something i always look at opinion and i always wonder you know what if you take a, a completely opposite stance to that you know um, we've seen a lot of the the hype Met, last year was metaverse and there was a lot around autonomous systems prior to that this year it's like chat gpt like give me a break everyone's <coughs> an expert or a prompt engineer and everyone's thinking it's going to change everything and right. Yeah, it is cool. Like, think it. It's right. not great advice to give to your clients to, like, right. you know, just double down and go all in on a piece of tech that's like held together with sellotape and string, right? right. And uh, that's probably going to be proven to be pretty terrible in terms of bias and uh, and a whole bunch of things around copyright and the usage of proprietary information against your will and corporate surveillance and whatever. So, anyway, um, but like, yeah, I mean you sort of end up a little manic. I'm also ADHD, so <laughs> <laughs> go down the hole, man. It, it's like, uh, it, it's it's difficult living with me some days. So, you know, apologies to, and big shout out to my partner, Sarah. So, Well, I was just about to say, um, and I do have more <laughs> questions. I know we've only got about half an hour, but I, yeah. you were talking about when you were getting ready to write the book that you kind of sequestered out in the California desert. I was like, of yeah. all places, why the California <laughs> desert? I grew up uh, right on the edge or went to high school in the edge of the desert. Yeah. Um, um, and you brought your family with you, and uh, right. you know you had to crank out 
what did you say, 80 or a hundred and something thousand words, wor working it down to 80 something thousand and, yeah. you know, that uh, whatever it was, yeah. I just thought, oh my gosh, with young kids, what an endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was, it was sort of 2021. Um, it'd been pretty rough living in Toronto during a pandemic. I mean, lockdowns, uh -huh. whoa, what a city right. for lockdowns sucked. Um, we, we generally didn't stick to the guidance of not going to see relatives or not flying right. places. You know, we, you know, obviously we weren't gallivanting around the world and I did all of my right. business online. So it's all good. Right. I'm in my big fancy home studio that I've now got, right. which is great. Um, so yeah, uh, we've got a family place in Palm Desert. Uh, I mean, it's not the desert desert, right? right. It's a gated community with it's an oasis in the desert. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I, I made friends with the Coachella Coachella Valley Economic Partnership, and I said, "I'm looking for an office. Is there a co-working space?" They're like, "We've got this brand new facility. No one's here because of COVID. You can have any office you want." And for three and a half months, I sat in a corner office, and I'd already done months of research and a bunch of pre-writing, whatever. I, I knocked out eighty-six thousand words in fifty days. And uh, and then the following year, over about two or three months, you know, my, my editor was like, there's a good book in there under all of that stuff. Right. Like, you know, you sort of, you, you just hack it all down and right. you get something that's really, really better, a lot better, right? Right. So the, the book's around 60-something thousand words. And uh, I think that it's just around the right length. And, you know, you can read a chapter independently or just part of it and get something from it. And that's how I generally approach that book as well. But, yeah. Getting away, being in a place on my own, literally writing it, um, having some solace, having that thinking, it's good. But I did have some really, really good friends that I could I could shoot chapters to just to, to say, no, that doesn't make sense. Yes, that makes sense. Uh, or, you know, what about this idea? And I ended up doing a bunch of podcasts with some really smart futures thinkers around the world, like Dr. Joseph Voros and uh, Wendy Schultz. Uh, Madeline Ashby, uh, Carl Schrader, people that write stories, people that work in futures work, people that are academics, people that are practical, uh, on the ground sort of uh, futurists. And it really helped me do it. Right? Right. Uh, writing a book is painful. But like, how do you solve the pain of writing a book? Write the book. Write the book. <laughs> there's no, it is. There's, it's, it's, there's no like shortcut. You know, right. People that go out and get a ghostwriter to hack something out so they say they've got a book, shame on you. Right. right. Yeah, that's not it, it. That's not the way. It is um, uh, just by way of connection. I sometimes write scripts for things we do internally here, and I'll sure. start off with not nothing big, fifteen hundred, two thousand words, and then to pare that down to two hundred words, right? To convey the idea I want to convey, because I I like to use four words where one will do, and so right. to strip that down, it <laughs> just too. is. It's it's horrible. Yeah. Look, I, I, I'm cognizant of time, but there are a couple yeah. ideas I want to try to Let's get to. It. One of them is <clears throat> whenever I hear the word dystopia, yeah, I think of either something cartoonish or something right. uh, you know, that's got Kurt Russell showing up, blowing the crap out of everybody because the right. overlords have us or something. And you talk about a positive dystopian framework and and then in your section i have written down here in human limitations and human human capabilities we struggle to imagine our place in challenging or dystopian futures yes what can you put that kind of together for us what do you mean yeah. by positive dystopian and and how is it that we struggle yeah so there's a couple of things we struggle to understand our place in a future right so 
it's been proven psychologically, and this is something I'm not sure whether it's in the book or not. You, you always find the good stuff after you finish the book and you send that <laughs> in, right? Um, so, okay, imagine yourself in 20 years' time, okay, mm-hmm. David? Like, 20 years' time. Yep. It's difficult, right? Because that David in 20 years' time feels like a complete stranger. Right. Um, futures work sort of bridges that that gap and you know creates a feeling of yourself in that future. It immerses you in these stories, right? But today, the reason, like it, that's one of the reasons why we struggle with the future. We just can't think of ourselves in that future. But why we uh, there's you know I, I, I talk about why are we afraid of the darkness. You mm-hmm. know why are we afraid to look into the dark? <clears throat> Negativity bias. So. <laughs> it's difficult to focus on both current and past negative events, right? Mm. So the information and emotions around them are more than their positive counterparts. So like it's difficult. So we we tend to tune out negativity. Nostalgia is uh the thief of good futures work. You know, we mm. think of the good times. You gotta think about how bad it was as well, right? Um availability bias. So um we tend to overestimate the importance of situations of stories that we've learned. So we colonize the future with a way that we all want to live forever. Thank you very much. Thus right. killing new ideas, right? right. And then there's confirmation bias, which is we're look, just looking for people that agree with us, <laughs> right? right? Do you agree that this is the, you know, right. the nuclear is the right way? We don't see that at all in social media now. Yeah. Well, this is it, right? <laughs> and you've got the echo chamber. And right. so, so, you know, we, we, we're afraid and it's perpetuated in our political cycles. Mm. You know, we, we've got politicians. In the next four years, we're going to deliver X, Y, and Z and great right. and in four years time they don't care right. uh, or you know or everyone's forgotten what they were going to deliver right, and, right. Um, yeah and um Paul Pullman uh actually who I mentioned earlier I was at a conference uh, the WM conference in Scottsdale Arizona last year when the the big golf tournament happens it was crazy right. it, was, it was pandemic times so everyone was in the audience in masks and everyone, yeah it was it was bonkers and uh, and he stood up there and he said we just did a study and they found that um Compensation for CEOs, I think it was in the US, is based on long-term performance. And the definition of long-term performance was something like 1.3 years. That's crazy. And all of that is because we're afraid to entertain the idea that we could be in a different world, that our world could be wildly positive, for everyone um it could uh, shirk off you know the the strict uh rules of you know shareholder satisfaction or right. whatever you know and right. we can be in a world where it's like about humanity and 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 surviving and thriving rather than this sort of you know subscribe to be part of this american dream or canadian right. dream or whatever right so right. it's interesting i i thought it was great we've got a guy coming back on the show who is um his business is software development, but his passion is this idea of conscious capitalism. And he nice. said, you know, in yeah. the late 70s, early 80s, we got sold this idea of the purpose of a business is profit. Right. A business has to be profitable in almost all cases, uh, a private business anyway, because it can't right. survive. But no more than your purpose is to eat or drink or sleep. You need those things in the yeah. right way to live. But if that's your purpose, You'll be a very shallow and probably deviant human being because you will do unnatural behavior. That's if right. your purpose is 
and you can define a way to help human beings flourish through your product, your service, your whatever. And this started with the, not started, but was codified by the guy who started Whole Foods and the other things. Right. They are unashamedly capitalist, but they are ashamed of being a capitalist of that nature. Right. Um, they want to be a capitalist that looks like this. And it's very pragmatic. It's not sort of permissive business, anything goes. You, you've got to run a business, but it is not mass layoffs. It is not... It, everything. It's it's salaries that look like these things, even if you're the founder and the owner. And it's not redistributing wealth. I tend to be libertarian conservative in my political and ideological sure. yeah. uh, work, and I've got traditional faith mechanisms and framework. And yet this idea that we can't look at how business has been done around the world for 50 years, but particularly in the West, and say, this is pretty gross to have this much affluence and this much brokenness. There's no other way for it. Um, that culture is unsustainable. You will eat yourself alive and die out right. and consume the resources. And I, I'm hoping that we continue that moment. And one of the things I dig about not just your book, but how you talk about this stuff is these very practical ways. And everybody doesn't have to agree with maybe your particular remedy in a particular area, although I do want to have you back in to talk about waste and, and smart city and sort of that ecosystem with food sure. and everything, because I have not spent time on that, and I would love to hear that on another yeah. conversation. But it, I'm hearing more and more people saying, look, I'm just looking at the obvious thing, and if we keep doing things like this, we're, we are ultimately going to destroy ourselves or the planet ecosystems around us. And, and put your political agenda or your emotional agenda for the side, and just with an open mind, hear what we have to say, and then let's debate and see if we can land on some common ground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean... This is this is the work we do, right? It, right. It's, it's like pushing the boundaries. I mean, again, back to it. Like, I I think futurists and people in foresight, uh, they're hope engineers. We're trying yeah. to work a way out. I mean, we're we're not in a, we're not feeling comfortable, right? Yeah. I, I I live in the fourth largest city in North America, and I'm surrounded in Toronto, and I'm surrounded. Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't think about Toronto. I'm surrounded by construction and growth and all of this. It's like. Ah, you know, then modern life is rubbish. You know, modern life yeah. is really, really, it's a struggle, right? right? You know, but you know, I've got my nice little enclave here and our little streets fine, but like, whew, it's like the, the world's moving. I often think about disappearing into the woods, you know, yeah, um, uh, in a way that's still connected to the world to do goodness and to like, you know, be able to go fishing and, and you know, hang yeah. out. <laughs> I, I, are you familiar uh, um, with the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, Tolkien's sure. world? Yep. As I listen to you, um, and I mean this in a flattering way, okay. or a complimentary way, I can't tell in that world if you're Gandalf, Elrond, uh, I would say Boromir from the Men of Gondor, Ooh, but uh, okay. he ended up getting taken out, so maybe yeah. Faramir, but it's this idea... I feel like you're standing there in Gondor, and you can see over the mountains the smoke coming from Mordor. Yeah. Nobody goes over to Mordor anymore. You know that, um, that there's something over there that we should be aware of, yeah. and you're trying to have a conversation with the rest of the people. I know it sounds crazy, 
But there's something forming over there that if we don't confront it now, it's going to get to a spot where we can't confront it. And now we don't have much to say in our future. We're just going to survive somewhere. So I'm not sure whether you're the dude with the staff. I don't think you're the little rang guy with the pine of ale and the thing carrying the ring. Um, You don't have pointed ears. But somewhere in there is this, what I like is when we talk about dystopian, where I kind of came to that is, you have this affinity for this dark future idea that you and your friends yeah. have uh, either done TED Talks on or um, you know, you've talked about the Black Mirror in the past. Like, Here's some of the crazy outcomes, which is not to say I think yeah. those outcomes will happen, yeah. but we need to be thinking about these things so that we can leverage them for our good, minimize yeah. the consequences and the harm. And if we don't take action, someday the shortest, curliest among us is going to have to stand on the side of this mountain and throw something in there and try to survive. So that's how my imagination goes as you tell stories, yeah. Mr. Science Fiction Story. But do you feel like sometimes you're one or more of those characters, whether you're the optimist or you're the pessimist or you're just the ranger on the journey, look, stuff's happening and I, I need to get your attention. So I'm the eagle, man. I'm, 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 I, so I, I, you know, I'm the traveler. I can take people where they need to get to. I can help them see things quickly. Right. I, I can cover ground very, very quickly and sort of be the enabler of gathering of more information okay. that's useful and transportation of people back. You know, um, from from the the jaws of difficult situations. Right. So that's right. what I would say in terms of the Lord of the Rings. I, I'd right. be the, the eagles. King right. of the Eagles. How cool <laughs> and, is that? And, and so what's interesting is I, I just read an interview with, with Tolkien and uh and he said people would read his books and then come in <clears> and just be like, Why didn't the Eagles just drop the the hobbits at the mountain to drop the ring in and be done with it? Right. And uh, like Tolkien would just tell them to, you know, sling their hook, right? <laughs> just like get out of it. You know, that's not we the can't sell two more books trip. if you do that. Exactly. Other things. It's like the beginning. We had this. They had this ring. The eagles flew into the mountain. They threw it in. It was all good. Um, right. <laughs> just no. drop the hobbit. You know, I, <laughs> I, I think maybe the eagles were a bit particular about what they really did, right? But like, right. Um, but yeah, that's it. Um, I'm the traveler. I, I, I travel between ideas and I connect things in, in new ways. And sometimes those executives strap themselves onto my back and come for the ride, man. That, that's, right. that's how it rolls. You talk about the Jahari window, about yeah. how we wrestle with the... What, why don't you explain what you mean by Jahari window and how this applies to you? Yeah, so this is the idea that um, we've got the the unknowns in the world. We, we, we right. either know what's happening, um, we've got the unknown knowns, um, things that we know uh, are there, but we don't know when they're going to happen. We've got the, the, the known, un- so we've got the known unknowns, um, the things that we know might happen, but we don't know when they're going to happen. Right. And then we've got the unknown unknowns, which are just like the things, that are, you know, the black swan event. So a black swan right. event, something that we just could never imagine could happen. A meteorite falls on LA, uh, an alien invasion happens, an earthquake happens in a part of the world where there hasn't been ever been an earthquake or an earthquake for a very long right. period of time, a tidal wave or whatever. Uh, a, a known unknown is something like COVID-19, the pandemic. Uh, it's a big black, we call it a, a black elephant. Mm. Uh, it's a black elephant that's staring at you in the room that's quite docile most of the time until it's not and then it causes so much havoc that it's it's almost impossible to to imagine right so so yeah the jahari window is just a way to really like frame you know known unknowns and unknown unknowns so i talk about that because 
really navigating unknowns is what we do in futures. So when we do go to these future um, horizons, we start to navigate, you know, what what can go well, what can go wrong. Um, and, and what goes wrong typically is a risk and something right. that's un, an unknown risk. So let, let's see what, what some of the effects of those are. So I use this, you know, this original thinking that came from way back in the day in terms of management, thinking about known unknowns or whatever, I called the Jahari window, and I sort of talk about that in my book. A hundred years ago, maybe a little longer, but something like that, there was no such thing as a chief technology officer, a chief information officer. Right. Uh, we probably had something around marketing or revenue or whatever for as long yeah. as there's been in business, but you advocate for a futurist officer. Yeah, chief futures and officer, yeah. Chief futures officer. And if you, I'm curious how you started off in our conversation about talking about the profitability and the other things that businesses can realize if they have somebody that plays this role how would they measure it though? If 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 ten years is really sort of the boundary, or, or the or yeah. the um, moves beyond strategy into future thinking, how do you one persuade a board that seems to be motivated by two year or less long term? Yeah. How do you persuade organizations to think like that? Yeah, you know this. <laughs> this is Love really. <laughs> yeah, this is really really tricky. So again, I've written a whole bunch in there. So it's a it's a creative discipline. It's part of design. Typically, these kinds of capabilities would live under the chief strategy officer uh, or chief information officer. Um, I, I advocate for the fact it should be a completely different discipline, not done off the side of the table. That we should have, you know, we should we should have someone that advocates for building future vision and exploring future capability and opportunity in an organization. Just because right now people aren't really taking it. You know that seriously. I mean, the, right. the the amount of companies doing futures work in the world is is still few and far between. But right. the ones that do get a huge amount of advantage um, by doing so. There's a study by uh, Rohrbeck and Kuhn, uh in in the year 2018 that looked at corporate uh, foresight and and performance, and it, it found out you know if you're vigilant and you really do future futures work that lead to future preparedness, you're going to be more profitable. You're going to have a higher rate of growth. It's proven. The companies that really do invest in these things really do find that but they're typically like little groups in the corner that maybe run projects in sprints every like two to three months or whatever i think that an organization that really wants to invest in these kinds of capabilities uh is gonna have a competitive advantage on an ongoing basis because it's gonna look beyond the cool tech it's gonna look behind the obvious opportunities it's gonna look outside of the industry that they're in and it's going to try and find new ways that their company's going to be relevant in 20 30 50 plus years mm -hmm. and you know we can see companies in asia that already do this they don't necessarily have chief futures officers but they've got people that that do pretty heavy futures work so masayoshi son from softbank he's got a 300 year business strategy um wow. the first 35 years is setting up a number of companies a number of areas that, that then perpetuate themselves out in terms of performance for 300 years beyond that you've got mr inamori um, again in japan uh from kiyosera which used to be kyoto ceramics very very old company that, that reimagined the company it uses a, a way of, of of management called amoeba management that actually gets people to innovate and think about futures uh, within little pods across the business and those amoebas destroy themselves and they reform into new groups and whatever you know and you know the in asian philosophy they think in millennia we think in two years three years right. 
you have this whole section, and, and I know yeah. we're out of time, but it, it yeah. just, I want to end with this, because I think yeah. it ties right in, about multi-generational thinking, like the Iroquois and the other people and what you're Iroquois, describing yeah. now. And I, that's another area that blew my mind and why I think people should read the book. I was like, I didn't know, I, I listen and read a lot, just me personally, and as a, you know, this part of my job so many of these things, they're not new. They haven't been celebrated or talked right. about, but they're not new. But if we can, it is this interesting juxtaposition to free our mind for the future. Yeah. In some ways, not everything that's come before should be tossed. We should use it to inform us either to continue a path, maybe that we abandon and should pick yeah. up again, or things that we're doing that really aren't healthy and we should lay them down. It's a really interesting topic. Yeah. So seventh generation thinking. Look out over 500 years into our futures. You know, realize that what you do today will ring through those annals of time. It's a very simple idea. But right. when you're, when you know, when indigenous uh, peoples, you know, have got a very close connection to the land. So do pagans. I, I talk about paganism in my book. Like I grew up in right. England. Right. There's no like indigenous English people. It, right. You had paganistic ritual and whatever that was probably right. very akin to, you know, the celebration of seasons and harvest and the land and Mother Earth and similar ideas. Right. right. And uh, before, you know, Christianity and whatever sort of right. sort of took over. I grew up in that part of England as well. Right kind of druids everywhere you know <laughs> <laughs> um but like it's it's really interesting you know we just need to have a simple idea and the simple idea is we wake up every day trying to be the best person we can for the betterment of every single person in the world try and make the right decisions about what we buy what we consume and how we do that um the right sort of ideas that we perpetuate through social media who we support um who we decide to criticize um the the new ideas that we we follow we need to be those people um, right. But as a community, we need to get behind everyone that's trying to do that because it's very, very difficult to do that and to feed your family <laughs> and to sort of so just just live 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 every day on this planet because we're living in this industrial complex, as I said, that's uh, is is in a very uh, tricky state of affairs. You know. Well, we're out of time. Thank you uh, very much. If people want to connect with you, um, first of all, I recommend the book Facing Our Futures on Amazon by Nicholas Badminton. Yep. Um, please go check it out. I, I don't endorse or recommend very many books. I really enjoyed this one. It was uh, an easy listen for me, but it was, right. as you can tell from this conversation, a number of points. If they want to connect with you beyond yep. the book and more than that, how do they do that? Yeah, you can literally reach out to me via like futurist.com. Uh, okay. I run the Futurist Think Tank over there. I'm also at nicholasbadminton.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, you know, Nicholas Badminton. Uh, you, you know it's me by how I look. There's another Nicholas Badminton in the world in South Africa, but he doesn't look anything like me, so we're, <laughs> we're good. And he's not a futurist, so we're all good. A um, little side note, I've enjoyed your watching your videos over the years, and I watched the tattoo sleeves grow, yeah. you know, grow Slowly over. Slowly get bigger, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a journey. Um, these are... Sh shamanistic uh, uh, emblems, the totems uh, around uh, how I think about the world. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's another discussion. We'll do, but we'll talk about biohacking next time. All right. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on today. Thank if you. you all have enjoyed the conversation, please like it. And if you loved it, please subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care.